Hi, I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. Today, we're talking with custom knife maker Steve Alvenshine about his history in muzzleloading and black powder, his extension into accoutrements, and then how that led him to being on the set of uh, more than 10 Hollywood productions here as an industry prop maker, black powder armorer, and just all around handyman for historical media. Steve, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Really excited to talk with you here tonight. So, how did you get your start then in, in muzzleloading and, and the associated crafts? I guess it started from just a, a love of shooting uh, at the at the base. Okay. I was a competitive shooter from maybe nine or ten years old. I shot in the NRA competitions. Okay. And we'll make we'll make that part of the story very short. I like shooting of all kinds, and then I had been given a uh, a CDA kit. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Christmas or birthday or something at some point. And it was still in the box many, many years later. And I moved to uh, Bourbon County, Kentucky, uh, with the Kentucky State Police. I had been stationed in Eastern Kentucky and then got transferred to Bourbon County. And I ran into Wayne Estes. Oh, okay. Uh, many of your listeners will, will know the name. Yep. Um, He's from here in Paris, fine gun builder. I got to know him. Well, I think he had a I think he had a crime I had to investigate, and uh, <laughs> I, I did that, and and it was quite involved. So I, I got to know him a little bit, and uh, I think I recovered some property for him. Okay. Um, and uh, it happened to be muzzleloaders uh, that were stolen, and so I got some of that back, and then so we got to know each other. Yeah. And I got to see his shop and and hang out a little bit. And I, I said, well, I've got this kit. You think you could help me build it up? He was good. He, he didn't say, you know, get that out of my shop. <laughs> um, we, we put it together. And then, of course, you know, what happens after you have that? Right. Well, now, now you got to build another one. Can't have just one. So I, uh, with his help, we built a, a nice short-barreled hunting rifle uh, in uh, walnut. And I still use it to deer hunt today. Okay. You said it's kind of short. What what caliber? What kind of furniture are we talking? It's it's a fifty eight caliber. Uh, I want to say it's like a, a thirty eight inch barrel, thirty six inch barrel. Mm. Um, and uh, I shoot mini balls out of it. Okay. Um, five hundred and thirty five grain mini ball. Um, it. Uh, well, there's not a deer in North America that can stop it. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and it shoots very well, uh, and I have no problem taking it to the woods. It's heavy, mm-hmm. um, but it's short. Um, I put a later put a, uh, a sling on it, and uh, it, you know it's just it's a tool. It, yeah. it works. Right. It works every time. Um, I, knock on wood, I don't think it's ever clashed on me for a deer. Um, and of course, I'm probably more particular uh, when I'm deer hunting about. You know, my flint and powder is, is everything dry, everything in good shape that I am at the range mm-hmm. um, because I, I don't want that clutch. But uh, it's always worked and uh, and harvested a lot of deer with that gun. That's it's wonderful. a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's how I was introduced to the uh, Kentucky Corps Long Rifleman. Um, great, boot, great bunch of guys. Um course they have that interstate shoot every october Mm -hmm. uh at fort boonesboro uh started going to uh um friendship um and in the first little bit i uh 
this was probably 91. I, uh, I had mentioned that I've always liked to make things. Um, I, you know, this term maker is huge now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think we called ourselves that, um, back in 91, but I just, I enjoyed making things, whatever that was. I just did it. And I wanted to make knives. Okay. Um, that was, uh, something I was always interested in. I'd always collected knives. Um, and I had always loved history. And that was part of the thing that, that I loved about the muzzleloading hobby was you can, you can dive in as deep as you want to into the history of it. Yeah. You can just, you can just shoot. You can just shoot in lines. Um, whatever there's there's something in it for everybody um and i love history um and especially kentucky history so uh i it was a perfect mix for me and then and then i saw these handmade knives going to rendezvous uh i went to a couple easterns um and i was like well there's people out here making knives i like to make stuff Mm-hmm. and and there's knives so <laughs> kind of um, put two and two was, together there it was kind of a no-brainer um it might have been a slow burn for the light bulb to come on but it did come on <laughs> and uh i i asked wayne about that and he said well i know a guy and uh he lives in woodbury kentucky and uh so the next thing i know i'm in frank house's shop and he's teaching Wayne and I how to make knives. <laughs> and uh, that's the kind of guy Wayne is. You know, he sees an interest and then he'll start hauling you to the best of the best where, where you can learn and figure this stuff out. Yeah. And who better than, than Frank House, right? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So, uh, so we went. Uh, and I think I went back maybe a couple more times on my own. Um, and I, I tell this a lot. Frank's been very supportive and, and he and I are good friends and, and we work several movies together uh, and we talk pretty regularly. Um, but on one particular time um, after I had started forging and making knives, um, I had a suitcase full <laughs> and Frank, Frank came in for a hammer in. We had it Wayne's. It was, I don't know. Snow was probably, two feet deep and we had paths to the forge and Wayne had a little cabin we built out back of his house and and uh we were in there I think watching a UK basketball game and uh man I was chomping at the bit to show Frank my suitcase of knives <laughs> and so I you know I finally saw my time uh-huh. halftime or something you know and uh I I brought out my suitcase, my little case, and I opened that thing up and I said, Frank, look, look, I've been making knives. I felt like that little, uh, foghorn leghorn. I felt like that little chicken followed him around. You know, I look, look, look what I did. And, uh, Frank looked at him and he was polite, which, which he is to his students when he's in front of, when they're in front of other people. (laughs) Uh, and, uh, he said, Oh yeah, yeah, that's nice. And, uh, so I asked him a few questions. He said, yeah. He said, it's good, Steve. It's good. He said, he said, you, 
you've proven to me that you can make knives. He said, now prove to me you're a knife maker. Ooh, okay. And that was all he said. And I, I, I shut my little case up and, and we watched the rest of the game. Well, I, I studied on that quite a bit. And, uh, and I, I, I started to understand what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, uh, I noticed that Frank, when he was building a gun, he, he studied that, that maker. He studied that rifle. Um, and he, you know, he didn't often make bench copies, but, but he would take inspiration from, from makers and he studied that stuff. And I said, well, all right, you know, he didn't get where he is by being stupid. So I started buying books and, uh, borrowing books and, uh, and actually went to the local library here and I had them bring some in. Um, and that, that really opened my eyes. Um, if I was going to make period knives, I need to understand what a period knife looked like and how it felt and, and what people did with them. So were you, were you or like getting books in that were, you know, kind of original accounts and, and journals and things, or were these like collections of, of knives and other accoutrements? What kind of books were you, were you searching for at this stage? Both okay. actually. I, I think I could, I could say that. Um, I, you know, I love, you know, the, the standard knife books that, that we all have American primitive knives, mm-hmm. uh, the minute, the minutes book, um, Grant's book, uh, what is that knife in a homespun America? Yeah, uh, sounds right. Those are the Bibles. Um, but, uh, you know, I was also, um, reading a lot of history on, on flintlocks and, and that kind of thing. Um, so I'm just kind of, of getting of, familiar with the era. Yeah, yeah, more of that than than anything else, probably. Okay. Um, I like Ron Ehlert's books. Um, uh, you know, just anything I could absorb that that might that might help me down the road. Yeah, yeah, um, I get you. And and I didn't do it like I was studying in school. I did it because it was fun. You yeah, know, I like yeah. that stuff. Um, and so. I, I got a little more in tune with what what a period knife should look like, what it should feel like, um, and uh, not try to make it like a what you might see at uh, a tourist stop in in Montana, um, right? You know, something that that actually works and feels good, and 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 then you know, Frank is uh, is an artist, and he is, and you'll understand this. The, the flow and the balance, um, how a knife or anything right. would look from one end to the other. Um, I even, there was a time period there when I was tearing pictures out of magazines of, uh, of new cars, ah, um, okay. and, and looking at, looking at the stylistic, um, cues from them. Like if you look at the brand new Corvette, uh, if that's not a knife screaming to be made, I'll eat your hat. Um, <laughs> I mean, every time I see one of those, I, I think, man, I've got a good picture of that. And, and get oh, that yeah. I mean, yep. I mean, people spend a lot of time and money creating interesting shapes and looks. And 
you know, there's a reason we like it. Yeah. And so I, I think that's what, if, if, if I could say anything to a new knife maker is, is learn that stuff. Yeah. Um, not just, not just the heat treat and temper. You got to know that stuff. Um, it kind of goes know. back into, I think about it, it as like middle school, high school art class kind of things where it seems, it seems really basic, but when you start looking at something like this and, and these accoutrements and, and the rifles and things, even down to the clothing at times, they're, those same design principles are there, you know, and, and you can go back and forth on whether or not people were trained, you know, especially in the 18th century, depending on the, on the trade and the skill that they were executing. But there are those design principles that exist in art that exist for a reason. And I, I really like that you brought up cars because whether you're looking at a car, a knife, a bag, or a gun, or a house, even there are those core design principles that make it look good. And if those are off, your eye knows it, you know, you, you, there's a feeling there that we all kind of have while art is subjective. There's some core stuff out there that, that I believe is it's right or it's wrong. (laughs) Not that it's bad, but when it's right, it's like, Oh man, that is, that is tight. (laughs) Well, well, people have heard me say this many times in many articles. Um, but I have, I have two principles in my knife making. When I make a knife, it either needs to be, needs to either look mean or sexy. Okay. Um, and if you can do both of those, you're on to something. Hmm. The other thing is I want people to, and of course I'm knocking on wood because now people are going to walk by my table and you know, look at me. And, <laughs> Start pointing stuff out. Yeah, or not, or not. <laughs> but I want I want people when they walk by my table to see a knife. It may not be every one, but I want to see one of them and go, "Oh, that's cool. I got to pick that up." Okay. Um, you know, I want that visceral reaction. They may not know why they like it. Hell, I may not know why I like it. Right. Yeah. Um, There's kind of a mystical element to this. While it, while it can be studied and practiced, there is still that kind of magic to say, you know, for lack of a better term, to it. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, when it's right, it's right. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's when we look at paintings by David Wright or, well, I don't want to leave out anybody's name. Um, right. Right. But you know, that genre gripping and Buxton and, and I can go on and on and on. Um, but you just, you know, it's right. And you'd love it. But what you don't know is there's probably half a dozen basic art principles that they used in that thing to make me feel that way. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's simple as I like photography. It's simple as the, you know, the rule of thirds. Mm-hmm. Um, the a mountain leads into the picture, not out of the picture. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you're taking a picture of a horse race, you want more space in front of the nose of the horse and not the back of it. You know, um, he needs to be running into the picture. Um, well, the same thing with knives. It needs to flow. Um, you, when you look from one end to the other, you don't want your eye to stop. Um, it needs to be continuous and and look like it was intentional. I really like that. I really I think that's something that I don't think we've talked a whole lot about on the on the podcast here. And uh, 
it kind of, I'm a big fan of like those beginner principles. And, and that's what I, I try to talk about. And well, I hope that, you know, people that are seasoned and, and really enjoy muzzleloading and the accoutrements can enjoy the program as well. Those, those beginner principles are something that I think that all of us can go back to and, and brush up on. I find myself, especially during the winter, returning to my sketchbook and practicing those basic things that I've been practicing for years now. And I, there's a, a kind of, warm homeliness to that, I guess. I mean, it, it's, it's returning to that and kind of starting over, but not really starting over, uh, just kind of a, a refresher before I go into kind of the year. Oh, absolutely. And, and even, uh, you know, going back to your sketchbook, if you, let's say that you, you don't have a project going for two or three weeks and, and you're sketching, you're, you're doodling, whatever it is, when you get on a bag, then let's say, or you're scrimshawing a horn, you may not know it, but that practice and that eye and that, and that thought, it carries over. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it might be the shape of the flap. It might be whatever. Um, and it's the same thing know, I would say with, with shooting. If you're going out and you want to get better with your rifle, you know, putting a wood flint in your jaws and, and dry firing in the house, you're going to figure things out while you're doing that, that you're going to be able to take to the range. And oh, each, each time you're at the range, when you, you go out and practice and you go to a competition, your brain's going to be working on that stuff from that practice and applying it without you really even thinking about it. Oh, absolutely. Um, I was on the UK rifle team while I was at UK and, uh, I, I shot probably a truckload of 22 rounds, um, <laughs> but I probably dry fired that much as well. Right. Um, and you know, it's, it's putting in the repetition, it's putting in the practice, um, muscle memory. Um, you know, there's muscle memory in knife making. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, when you do a thing and you've done it enough, you don't have to think about it. Um, it's easier, it's cleaner. Um, so yeah, that's, it carries over into all we do like that. So for you, when you're, when you're making something just, you know, kind of for yourself, what does that process look like? Are you, I mean, now you're, you're at a point where oh, probably you have kind of a mental library built up where you don't necessarily need to return to the research each and every time, but say you have, you know, a period of time where you can kind of work on something that you want to work on. What's that process look like? Well, honestly, that doesn't happen very often. Right. Uh, <laughs> I think we I, all I, want more of that, but don't really get I it. Wish, I wish it did. Yeah. Um, I, I do. I have been blessed with some, uh, some clients or customers that have said, make what you want to make. Um, I want something and mm. I don't care what it is. That's, that's, well, it's, it's a two sided coin. It's, it's fun. Um, it's, it's exciting. It's also scary. Right. Um, cause now it's like, put your money where your mouth is. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. somebody has get, somebody is, is giving you a blank check said, okay. And a blank, blank canvas. Right make something cool that you've never done. Um, that's really exciting, but dang, um, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, 
it's intimidating too. Um, and so if, you know, now, if, if somebody says that to me, I'm probably going to either look at a buoy knife or, um, or a folder. Um, okay. one of those two. Um, and you know, and then I'm going back to the books. Um, you know, I, I've read and studied a lot about Bowie knives. I've, I've went to, uh, Dr. Uh, James Batson's, uh, seminar, um, who is probably the Bowie knife expert in the country. Um, and certainly it's at least debatable that he is. Right. Um, and you know, I, so I've still got a lot to learn. Um, I sure like doing them. Um, and I like being able to take my time on a piece and, and feel good about taking that time to, to do it right and do it pretty cool. So do you, do you work a lot in a, in a sketchbook? Are you sketching things out or are you working more in, in three dimensional space when you're kind of blocking something out? No, I do. I do sketch it out. Um, and something I started, oh, I don't know when it was, when the first one was, it, it's been a lot of years now. Uh, <laughs> I do water, I do watercolors. Oh. Um, and, uh, I'm not very good at it. I'll be honest. Um, that's okay. But I, but I like it. Yeah. And, uh, so, but what started it was, um, a prop master said, okay, I need a knife, um, for this. Um, can you come up with something, send me a sketch and let's look at it. And so I did a watercolor and, uh, sent them the thing and they loved it. They could see it. They could see the colors and the handles. Um, and you know, may have got me that job. I don't know, but I, I started doing that. So now for prop masters, when they want to prop, usually at the knife, um, I'll do a watercolor and send them the watercolor and, and I enjoy it. I think they like it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, it, it's kind of fun for me. Yeah. I love watercolor. It's my favorite painting medium. So I, I love to hear that, <laughs> hear you say that. That's great. It, it's fun. Um, and, uh, Bryant White, um, uh, artist, um, he, uh, he, uh, kind of got me started. I think we were at a show, um, where were we? I guess we were at, the, at Gettysburg at a show and, uh, and I started talking about that I had done this and, uh, so he started, he sat down, he had a little watercolor set. He sat down with me at the show and, and we started painting. Wow. And, uh, you know, how cool is that? Yeah. That's awesome. Um, and then my daughter was there and she talked to him. Um, and, uh, and behind my back and, and got kind of a <laughs> list of things I needed for, uh, for Christmas. So, okay. Uh, that's very sweet of her. Yeah, it was, it was really cool. So, uh, after that, I uh, I was stuck. I, I don't do it a lot, but uh, I do it enough. This podcast is brought to you by Muzzleloader Magazine, the publication for traditional black powder shooters. 
Since 1974, Muzzleloader has been the leading magazine devoted to traditional black powder hunting and shooting. Each issue is jam-packed with articles on hunting, shooting, gunsmithing, do-it-yourself projects, living history, American history, book and product reviews, and much, much more. Muzzleloader Magazine is the best traditional muzzleloading magazine, bar none. I'd like to thank Jason at Muzzleloader Magazine for his continued support of I Love Muzzleloading and the I Love Muzzleloading podcast. I don't care what you're into. If you're interested in muzzleloading, this is the kind of magazine I think you need to check out. I've been a fan of Muzzleloader Magazine even before the sponsorship. Uh, I've always been impressed with what Jason has been able to put out with Muzzleloader Magazine, and it really means a lot for him uh, to be supporting I Love Muzzleloading and our efforts over here. Thank you, Muzzleloader Magazine, for your support. This podcast is brought to you by Thor Bullets. I've talked about Thor Bullets for over a year now, and uh, and I'd like to thank them again for their sponsorship. I have since, in this amount of time, went out and tested these bullets on my range. I have not gone hunting with them, but in my penetration testing and my accuracy testing with my CVA Acura LRV2, I have to say that the Thor Hammer bullets size to my bore for that Acura do a phenomenal job. I have sub one inch groups at 100 yards if I do what I'm doing. Uh, right with the rifle. Uh, really can't speak highly enough of these bullets. I, I think you should try them, not just because they're supporting the show, but because they are performing really well in the tests that I am doing. I also want to say real quick here that they have come out with their Thor muzzleloader practice bullets. These are a 50 caliber, 230 grain sabotaged lead bullet for you to get out. It's a little bit of a cheaper option for you to get out and shoot your muzzleloader, practice with your muzzleloader a little bit more. And in general, get more familiar with your muzzleloader without using the Thor patented, you know, hunting premium bullets that uh, we've been talking about here for a while. So that's something for you to check out, something for you to consider. Uh, there's a lot of muzzleloader bullets out there, but uh, really can't thank Thor enough for their support of I Love Muzzleloading. And, uh, you know, talking with the guys over at Thor, the, the mission and the kind of people that they are, uh, they're really the kind of people that I will continue to support through my lifetime and, and my muzzleloading career, uh, apart from the sponsorship. Uh, they've done right by me, and uh, it's been it's been a lot of fun working with them. So check out Thor Bullets. Not really a structured ad read here, but um, I hope that you, you, you know, check out maybe some of the practice bullets they've got. And uh, as you're planning for your fall 2022 hunts here, check out some of the Thor Hammer Bullets. We've talked a little bit here about kind of what goes into making your personal work. How does that contrast with with making work for for these Hollywood productions? You, you're talking about sending these watercolor sketches out. Is there much of a difference between when you are making something for a customer or a client in Hollywood, or is, is are these Hollywood prop designers and leaders there? Are they just kind of a, a different kind of customer for you? Yeah, it's completely different. Okay. Um, you, you really have to check your ego at the door. Hmm. Um, they, uh, well, for instance, uh, you know, you know how we are. We like to tell war stories. <laughs> um, so I, I did the knives for, uh, for Jumanji that the rock was going to carry. Hmm. And, uh, the, uh, prop master called me and said, Hey, I'm going to send you a picture of a knife that, uh, the art director has approved and uh, we like it. It was a, it was a, a computer rendering yeah. of, a, of a knife that they had 
you know, taking the blade off this one, the guard off this one, the handle from something. They said, can you make this? And I said, sure, I, I can do that. That's in my wheelhouse. It was a buoy mm-hmm. about 11, 11, 12 inches. And I said, yeah, I said, I can do that. So, uh, they said, all right, we worked out a contract for three knives and I had uh, four weeks to do it. And, uh, so I uh, finished a knife and had two more well on the way in two weeks. Um, I sent the knife FedEx overnight mm-hmm. to the prop master. Well, they showed it to, to Dwayne Johnson and his words were, it's a bit wee. <laughs> w E E. Okay. And I, and I, I, so prop master calls me back and says, Steve, he said, Dwayne Johnson says it's a bit wee. <laughs> I said, okay. I said, cool. Uh, what, what are we going to do? Right. Well, we, we need a bigger one. I said, well, all right. I said, but I've already worked two weeks for you. So, um, here's what you're going to pay me for these two weeks. Um, and then we'll work out a contract for the other three knives. And they said, fair enough. Wow. So that's great. So we, I'm surprised. There. So we, yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, I couldn't do it any other way. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I couldn't, couldn't afford to. So, so, uh, they cut me a check for those two weeks and then he and I got, got to working on what he wanted. And frankly, um, I, I, I am not, the knife is ugly. Um, <laughs> that one of the problems that, that, uh, that Dwayne Johnson had was that the handle was too short and I knew he had a big hand. In fact, I had asked for a picture of his hand with a, a cloth tape measure around the, right. the meat of his hand. And his hand was one half inch bigger than mine. If you're looking at your palm, um, one half bigger than mine, uh, thick wise. Okay. You know? Yeah. And, uh, I said, well, all right. So a normal, normal knife handles in that four and a half range, uh, I'll make it five inches and, yeah, it's big enough. And uh, so I did that, sent the prototype in, and they said, well, that handle's still too short. <laughs> and, <laughs> Jeez. and I was on, I was on the phone with, I was in a conference call and uh, I don't, I'm not sure who all was in the room on the other end. But they said, and and we want five finger grooves because before it was a smooth handle, didn't have finger grooves. They said, we want five finger grooves. And I, I said, there was a guy in my shop and he reminds me of this often. <laughs> um, I, I said, I know he's a big dude, but he's only got four fingers. <laughs> and there was this pause, crickets. And I was like, and they said, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, you can. Only, yeah. Okay. Oh, four finger grooves. I said, all right. So I said, look, I'm going to send you templates to give to him. They called him DJ. I said, you give DJ the templates and let him pick which one he wants. 
So I made up cardboard templates uh-huh. from five inches to six and a half inches in half inch increments. Right. He wanted the six and a half inch. <laughs> I've I've well, pulled up an image here. I, I will include it in the show notes so that people can can <laughs> take a look at it because I'm starting to see what you're saying, and I I know your work, and I'm looking at this, and this is starting to come together a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I I did it. I I did the six and a half inch handle uh, with I think it's a sixteen inch blade. So the whole knife's like twenty three inches long, um, almost two feet and weighed a full two pounds. <laughs> yeah. Uh, quarter inch steel. Um, and, uh, they wanted, uh, if you've got the picture up, they wanted those little divots on top. Okay. Um, it was nothing like the original one I had made. Yeah. So that's production I, for you. That's it. You, you literally have to put your ego aside because, it's not your vision that you're trying to create. Mm-hmm. It's the director's vision. It's not yours. Um, I often explain that, that the director is painting a picture and all of us in the crafts, whether it be props or, or art department or greens or set decoration, we're all paints and paintbrushes. And he's using us to paint his picture. Yeah. And it's not my vision of what the knife should look like. It's his vision or hers. Um, and, you know, in this case, I don't, I, it wasn't what I make. But if you look at it in the scheme of the movie, it fits. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of cartoonish, um, but it fits in the, in the movie. And so back to your original point, there is a difference. Yeah. Um, you, you have to check your ego at the door and make what the production needs to make the picture look the way it's supposed to look. Right. Cause there are hundreds or if not, you know, thousands of hands just, you know, not just like yours, but that are all going in on this. I, I, I really like your, your paintbrush analogy there because that that makes a lot of sense yeah and it can be frustrating yeah um you know um you can work on something for quite a while and you know you know in abraham Lincoln vampire hunter frank and lally frank's wife lally and Mm -hmm. i were were there for several weeks in the prop shop making props and we learned really quickly that just because we thought it was really, really cool what we had made did not did not mean that the director was going to think right. it was really, really cool. <laughs> yeah, and you know that's frustrating. Um, so if you're going to do this work, you've got to decide. Okay, it's you know I'm not putting my, you know I'm not putting this on my table at a show. This is for this movie. Right. And, uh, yeah, it's probably going to have my name on it. But <laughs> but everybody knows that it's a prop for a movie. Yeah. And in a movie like Jumanji, that big old knife kind of fit. And yeah. truth is, it did not look huge on him. Right. Um, He's a movie, big dude. <laughs> he is a big dude. And in the movie, it looked good. 
It yeah. looked fine. Um, and when he pulled it in the movie, it looked like it fit. Right. Yeah. Now I could, I could look at it and I might've stopped it a time or two to pause it to look. Um, the handle was huge. I mean, come on. It was, it was, You're sitting there with your popcorn and your remote, you know, frame yeah, by frame it was, in it. <laughs> it was easily an inch and a half too long on that handle, but mm. I, I, it's fine. Right. The checks, the checks cashed and, and there you go. You're down on your, uh, down on your way there. Yeah. So is it, is it pretty, uh, uh, pretty typically a, a quick turnaround for something like that? I mean, four weeks for three knives, especially with that kind of back and forth has got, you got to be booking it in the shop. Yeah, you really do. Um, and that's frankly, that's why, um, you know, you charge more, hmm. um, uh, to a movie production. Um, and it, it's, it's not the fact that I'm gouging the production. Um, it's that they want three knives in four weeks. Well, what does that mean? You know, three Bowie knives in four weeks. That means I'm going to be working overtime. Yeah. Right. And I know what prop makers get paid when they're in a prop shop. Right. Right. And I know that after a certain amount of time, they're on time and a half. Yeah. Um, so if I'm going to work 10 or 12 hours a day in my shop, and it's not my choice. I have to, to get this out. Um, then I'm going to charge for that. Right. And, and they, and they do pay more. Um, and there is always a deadline. Um, and it's one that you just really can't miss. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta hit that deadline. Um, and there may be changes in the middle of it that you have to deal with. So yeah, it's uh it's, I'm not going to say always, but it is often a short timeline. <laughs> um, a good friend of mine, a uh, prop master, he was, I think, an assistant prop master on, uh, oh, uh, Picard, Star Trek series. Okay. And I was in Gettysburg. Oh, this is, this is a funny story. Um, <laughs> I, I probably shouldn't prep it with that because it may not be all that funny, but um, I was in Gettysburg, my wife and I, and uh, we're walking. We got there on a Thursday. We were walking to eat, and the show started Friday. And and Thursday, I got a call that said, uh, said, Steve, it's Mike. You have any knives ready? <laughs> and I said, for what? And he said, well, and he explained he's working this show. And, uh, they were in a production meeting and, uh, and, uh, Patrick Stewart said, shouldn't I have a knife in this scene? <laughs> and of course everybody around him went, well, yeah, of course you should. Well, yeah, you say that and, to Patrick Stewart for sure. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and so the props team was like, Oh shoot. <laughs> All right. So they left the meeting, called me and I said, well, I, I happened to be at a show. I happened to have, I think I had seven. I said, I'll send you pictures. And, but none of them are duplicates. They're all one offs. And they said, okay, so I sent him pictures. And he said, well, that's really not what we want. And we need two. <laughs> I said, all right, what, what is it you want? You know, they described it. And I said, okay, I know exactly what you're talking about. And he, and Mike said, well, he said, and, uh, 
Patrick wants it to be made out of grapevine wood. <laughs> I said, I, I, my, I, I don't even know what grapevine wood is. Right. And he said, well, like, like grapevines, you know, big grapevines that are cut down. And I said, is that a thing? <laughs> and, and he was like, well, I guess that's what he wants. And I said, all right. So, uh, we do the show. We're leaving on uh, Sunday morning, coming back, and we stop on I-64 just into Kentucky and uh, on the side of the road. Oh, that's the other thing. I said, when do you need it? He said, well, they got to be here by Wednesday. <laughs> oh, my gosh. No, I'm in Gettysburg. Right. You know? so, so we're coming home Sunday. You're we're not working the through the, the weekend road. here. <laughs> no. Well, I've been show, right? Right. It's been show doing that. You've been stuff. working that job, you know? Yeah. So we stop on the side of the road. I run into the woods. I guess people probably thought I had to go to the bathroom, but I ran in the woods with my Leatherman. <laughs> found, found a grapevine. And this is spring. This was like April. And there's a huge grapevine, wild, wild grapevine hanging there because um, they're all over Kentucky. Yeah. I think Indiana too. Yep. Same um, up here. And uh, so, man, I started cutting on that grapevine. Well, of course, it was green, and the water poured oh. out of that thing. <laughs> and I'm talking, I'm talking like you turned on a faucet. Yep. Because this thing was probably, I don't know, it was probably four and a half inches uh, diameter, and all I had was a leatherman, and I was sawing <laughs> through this section. Long story short, I was soaked. Uh, I got this, I don't know probably 18 inch section of this grapevine and it was completely white inside. Right. It was, it was fairly hard soaking wet, but it was white. So I get home. I, I look online. I, I said, how do I dry this out in a hurry? I, <laughs> in a I, real hurry. <laughs> I put it, I put it in the microwave. I cut it into sections. I, it was miserable and I fooled with it all the rest of that night, all the rest of Sunday night, Sunday night, I gave up. And I said, this is not going to work. I had, I had the water content down to like, I don't know, 20% or something. Right. And I, you know, it needs to be around seven. Um, so, uh, I called a friend of mine who, uh, was a caretaker of a horse farm, greens, greens guy does all the trees and landscaping. And, and I said, do you all cut um, wild grape vines? Are they a thing you all have to deal with? He said, all the time. I said, do you have any that you cut last year that are still hanging in the trees? And he said, well, probably. So he went out and he found some. Well, Monday morning, early, and I don't get up early, except <laughs> when I'm doing stuff like this, or if I'm, or if I'm deer hunting. Okay. So he shows up at the house. He's got a truckload. And uh, some of them were big enough that I could I could use. So I thanked him, and he went on his way, and, man, I started cutting. And I cut into it, and it was dry because I asked him for hanging stuff still yeah. in the air, not, not on the ground. Yep. And it was dry, and it was a really pretty color brown. I was really surprised. So I made some slabs. Uh, long story short, I made two knives, um, and there were wormholes loaded with wormholes. Yeah. Well, the knives have to match. Oh, so geez. 
if there was a wormhole in one, I had to make a wormhole in the other. <laughs> and, and so I was, I was putting them side by side and using a little Dremel and yep. chisels and cut little wormholes and drills. And, and while I'm doing that, here comes a worm out of one of them. Now this is on the knife, right? This is done. This is glued up, sanded oh, on my the knife. Goodness. Okay. And I'm like, Oh crap. So I feel it. I just coat the knife in epoxy, uh, a real put epoxy in the holes. I colored it black, put it in the holes, put a thin layer on the outside, wiped it down, uh, and shipped them off. And I called the guy and I said, look, I said, you tell Sir Patrick that if a worm wiggles out in the middle of shooting, it's not my fault because he, he wanted freaking grapes buying wood. And that's what he got. <laughs> and, and so it, it worked. They got the knives by Wednesday and, uh, and they were in the pilot. And wow. so all is good. Wow. All is good. That is a feat. That's thank you for sharing that. That's really, uh, that was funny. I think if you're not laughing, then I don't know what makes you laugh, but <laughs> it, it, you know, it wasn't funny while I was going through it. No, well, no, that actually, must be horrible. <laughs> actually, actually, when the worms started coming out on my completed knife. Right. Okay, yeah. Um, that that was kind of funny. I was like, oh, dear God. It kind of caps off the project. <laughs> yeah, it really did. It really did. That's when I decided that epoxy was going to become my friend. Right. Um, wow. And uh, so, yeah. So how did you go from, we didn't really touch on this. How did you go from Kentucky state trooper into making grapevine handled knives <laughs> for Star Trek? Well, what was um, that transition like a little bit? Just so we, we, get, we paint a little bit of that picture. It, it was Frank house again. Okay. Um, we can blame him then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He, he gets the blame or the credit. Um, and, and I would certainly say credit. Um, in 90, uh, 99, he did, uh, he did the rifle for Mel Gibson and the Patriot. Yep. Um, uh, you've had him on this podcast. Um, and, uh, and so he did that and then he was asked, he, he went down to train Mel and, and did that. And while he was there, they said, Hey, can you stay and work with our armor and help with flintlocks? And he agreed. And, uh, and there were, you know, some other people there too, that he called in, uh, or, or the armor did not sure how that worked, but when he got back, um, I was giving him a hard time. Um, he, uh, he had moved to Bourbon County. He was working on, uh, the Tribune house, restoring that house. And, uh, I said, Frank, you should have called me. I'd have loved to go and do that. And he said, Steve, you're, you're working full-time state police. I can't, you can't get off for, you know, three, four or five weeks. Right. I said, I said, try me. <laughs> so, uh, fast forward to 2003. Um, I was on the joint terrorism task force with the FBI. Um, and had been assigned by the state police to go there full time to work on that task force after nine 11. Um, I had only been on the task force for, I don't know, a month. Um, 
in 03 when Frank called and said, all right, Steve, put your money where your mouth is. <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? He said, come, let's go to Mexico, work on a movie. I said, how long do I need to be gone? He said, well, probably at least four weeks. I said, all right, hold on. So I talked to my state police boss. I talked to the FBI boss. State police boss said, hey, you're assigned to them now. If it's all right with them, it's all right with us. You've got plenty of big vacation time built up. You've got, you got compensatory time built up. You've got, you could be gone six months, technically. Okay. Um, and the FBI said, well, Steve, it's actually perfect. He said, because we're waiting on your top secret clearance to come through, and it hasn't come through yet. And they had me reading old cases that weren't classified and helping out doing stuff that, that didn't involve having a clearance. He said, by the time you get back, your clearance will be done and you'll be ready to get to work. Well, shoot. And I said, I said, all right, done deal. I'm out. So um, <laughs> it seems like one thing leads to another story. Um, so I told Frank, I said, all right, I'm in, let's go. So he and I, now he had worked, he had at that point he had i think he had only worked um the patriot and i may be wrong about this but i think the prop master was the same prop master that hired him uh was now with master and commander okay so so that was the connection um so we agreed um we did the deal and he and I meet in Lexington at the airport. And so at, I don't know, seven in the morning, we get on an airplane and we are headed to San Diego. <laughs> so, uh, I left the house about six that morning, got to Lexington. We flew out at seven or so. Um, we get to San Diego four hours later. Um, of course there it's only, you know, it's, it's essentially eight in the morning. Yeah. Something like that. So we get our bags and, uh, we walk out front of the airport there and there's a, uh, a Mexican fella hold cause it's filmed in Mexico, a Mexican fella holding a sign that said house Avenshine. And we looked at each other and said, well, I guess that's us. <laughs> and, uh, he loaded our stuff up in a nondescript white panel van <laughs> and, uh, and we headed South and out of San Diego and Frank and I are looking at each other thinking, boy, I sure hope we're not being kidnapped here. <laughs> um, you know, cause there was no markings for the studio. There wasn't anything. So we go across the border, uh, head into Mexico and sure enough, we end up on the, on the lot and we tell the, the, driver i i spoke a little spanish and I, I said we need to go to the prop house um so okay so uh we go to the prop house and uh open the doors and we're getting our luggage out of the back and uh, up comes the prop master doug harlocker and he's in a golf cart and he says throw your stuff in the prop shop we gotta go <laughs> And you got to remember now, five hours earlier, six hours earlier, I'm in Paris, Kentucky, never been on a movie set. Right. 
So he's saying, throw your stuff in there. We got to go. So we load up in the golf cart and he's a flying down through there. And he says, the Frank, I think said, um, I got to stop. Did Frank tell this story when he was on here? No, no, he didn't. No. Okay. All right. Good. No, keep going. I didn't want folks to have to listen twice. (laughs) So Frank says, said, Doug, what's the matter? He says, well, our cannoneer quit last night. He said, and today is all about cannons. (laughs) And he said, said, can you all run the cannons? And Frank said, well, sure. (laughs) And of course, my eyeballs are getting bigger every second. And I'm looking at Frank and, and he kind of looks at me and shrugs his shoulders. You've probably seen that look like, yeah, here we go. So, uh, here we go. So we get out of the golf cart, Doug runs on into the soundstage and I grabbed Frank and said, can we run cannons? And he said, they're just big flintlocks. I said, it's fine. (laughs) I said, I said, all right. So, uh, we, uh, go into the soundstage and here's 12 guns, six point in each direction out what looks like a lower deck of a ship. And it's on a gimbal. So it moves. Mm-hmm. And there's Paul Bettany. Uh, Russell Crowe was running around. I don't think he was in this scene, but he was there. Um, and again, six hours earlier, I'm in Paris, Kentucky. And now I'm on a soundstage on at that point was the biggest movie of the year. And, we're running cannons. <laughs> um, so that was my trial by fire uh, into the movie business. Right. And, and in, and in retrospect, it was probably the best thing that could have happened to me. Um, no, no time to worry, no time to be nervous. Um, and I just watched what the other crew did when it came time to hide, you hid. Um, you know, I knew, I knew gun safety. Uh, I knew how to run a flintlock. Uh, the guns were flintlock mechanism on top, but it was special effects that kicked them back okay. and, uh, flame, and flame out the front. We weren't responsible for that. All we were responsible for was that big flintlock on top. And uh, and it worked fine. And Frank was right. We could do it. And uh, and that was my introduction to uh, the movie business. Wow. And then after that, you went back to Terrorism Task Force? I did. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. Was there for four weeks. Uh, Frank stayed for, Frank had already been there working with him uh, on another, another piece of the show. Um, I don't remember what that was, but I think Lally was there as well. They were working on some props and, and, uh, and uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. And he had come home and then we went back. And, uh, so I was, he left after three weeks, I was there another week or 10 days, finished up, um, second unit work. And then I came home. And as soon as I got home, I went back to work with the joint terrorism task force. So what, what kind of stuff then were you doing after the cannon day for, for master and commander? Just running the flintlocks. We had a ton, we had a ton of gun work, um, and in retrospect, we didn't have enough people. Um, and we learned that the hard way. Uh, at some point, I think we had 175 guns going at one time. Wow. Um, and we had had to train the extras. Um, and then we had to clean all the guns after everyday shooting. Oh, my um, gosh. 
Yeah. It I was, love muzzleloading, but wow, that's a lot to clean. Yeah, you better love muzzleloading. Um, <laughs> if you're gonna, if you're gonna do it. We did have a steam cleaner, um, which without it, we'd have been sunk. Yeah. Um, Jeez. And uh, but yeah, it was a huge undertaking, and uh, and I, I, neither one of us. We've talked about it. Neither one of us could do it now. Um, we were young and stupid. Didn't know any better. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that, yeah, that was rough. Um, but what happened after that is there were three or four property assistants to Doug Harlocker, the prop master. And now each one of those is a prop master in his own right. Okay. And so, so it's kind of a family tree. Yeah. And, uh, and then they started and they, they found that on that show. Um, I think it was the first real introduction that we had to them that we made stuff. Right. Right. Um, they, uh, they'd come up with a prop that they needed made that day or for the next day. And since we were in that, that 18th century world making stuff, it wasn't hard for us. We had to make a fire starting kit in a hurry. Uh, so, you know, we were making char cloth. We were forging, uh, Frank forged a little striker. Uh, I stole a kid's Altoid tin, dumped <laughs> his Altoids on the table. Um, you know, and yeah. in about a half hour, about a half hour, we had a, a strike light kit. So uh, they found out we could do that stuff. And then, then we started being asked in subsequent years by these guys to make props, uh, make knives, you know, that kind of thing. So the, your most recent picture, I, I was able to watch, I think last weekend, uh, Pale Blue Eye on Netflix. I got to ask because there, there wasn't a whole lot. I, I was expecting a little bit more. Um, as far as accoutrements go in that picture, but what was production like for that? And, and what kind of things did you end up making for it? Well, I didn't make anything for that. Okay. Um, all, all I did was, uh, Frank and I ran the guns. Okay. Um, and there was absolutely zero gunfire. Um, <laughs> okay. That's a, okay. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, there was supposed to be, um, but, uh, it wasn't long after the Alec Baldwin incident. Oh, and okay. everybody was afraid of gunfire, I think, at that point. Um, and really, the movie wasn't about gunfire. It right, yeah. Been it would have been incidental to the plot. We'd have had cadets in the background in practice. Um, maybe a 21-gun salute, I think, may have been scripted originally for the funeral scene. Um, there was gunfire originally. Okay. But, um, but we didn't end up firing a, firing a single uh, musket, um, <laughs> which was, you know, okay. Yeah. That's what y'all want to do. Right. Um, but we were, we were locked and loaded. We were ready to go. We we're ready to do it. Um, but it, basically we just wrangled, um, cold guns. Interesting. Uh, and I mean that, I mean that in, in two senses, um, they were unloaded, so they were cold, but it was also freaking cold. <laughs> um, and, uh, so that wasn't so, fake you know, snow we, then. No, no, there, you know, there were a few times they had to add a little fake snow if, yeah. if it, you know, started melting in patches, but there was a lot of very real snow and it was very real cold. <laughs> 
Well, that's great. I, I really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, knowing that you and Frank worked on it and the other stuff that you guys have worked on, it just kind of adds a, a neat little layer to watching something to be able to catch some of your work in there and, and know that you were a part of the production. I think it's neat, you know, as many frustrations I think we have with, with Hollywood and at, especially culturally at times in, in our community, it is nice to know that when it comes down to it, they do bring in people from the muzzleloading community that know what they're doing to make something right. Whether that's, you know, making sure the guns are clean at the end of the day or, or making a, a fire starting kit in a day. Um, you know, I think that's, that's really neat. I, I, and I, I, I think it's great that you guys are continuing to do that. Yeah. And, Sometimes it works better than others. Um, some directors are very concerned about historical accuracy. Uh, Peter Weir on uh, Master Commander was very into it. He mm -hmm. wanted historical accuracy, and, and he would defer to us um, if we had suggestions or, or something wasn't done a certain way, and, and we felt like it needed to be right. Yeah, they, He wanted it to be right. Um Others, not so much. Hmm. Um, you know, the old uh, the old thing we complain about, you know, 14 shots out of a revolver. Uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes they don't care. Right. They really don't. They really don't care. They're making a movie and and they're just trying to get an image across of this happening. And they don't care if people are counting and saying, well, that gun can't hold but five, you know. Right. OK, great. I don't care. Um <laughs> It goes back to the, that that painting that that they're, that they're working on. That's it. That's you know, it. It's a feeling. Yeah, uh, yeah. The opening scene of Crossbones. Uh, it was an old NBC series with John Malkovich. That it was in the pilot episode, and I believe it's some of my best work, and and Frank's as well. Um, a ton of guns. What I say, going off in an elevator, basically. <laughs> um, and we had, they were stunt players and they were good. And, you know, there's a big difference. God bless background actors. We got to have them. Um, but it's like, it's like that veritable box of chocolates. You right. know, you never know what you, you never know what you're going to get. Um, but with stunt players, you could pretty well rest assured that they're going to have their stuff together. And that crew was great. And we were able, I mean, the reason I bring that up is the director, the prop master had brought in a knock volley gun, ah. seven barrel, 45 caliber, um, flint lock. They all go off at once. Right. Yeah. We used it. We used it master and commander as well. Okay. Um, and, uh, the problem was in, uh, in crossbones, it hadn't been invented yet. Um, <laughs> In right. the time period we were filming. Okay. And, uh, but the director didn't care. And, uh, so we used the knock volley gun in that opening scene. And, uh, you know, it's an anachronism. It's not right, but he liked it. It looked cool. And thank God Frank was there to keep that thing running. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if you've ever shot the knock volley gun. I have not. It is not hard to get them to go off once, <laughs> but to get them to go off consecutive times is, is a trick. Okay. Um, you get the and, seven at uh, once and that's about it for, for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you have to clean it between, um, 
you basically you have to break it down and clean it between each shot. Jeez. And it uh, it's got a it's got a trackway. You know, like flintlock's got a pan and that goes yeah. through a flash hole. Well, it's got a pan with a with a flash hole, but that flash hole feeds down into seven barrels. Right. And if that's not clean, you'll get barrels not going off. And if you don't then clean those out, now you have powder on top of powder. Um, yeah, it's a problem. Right. Um, but we had two of them, and Frank was able to keep – we would rotate them. He'd, he'd clean one. I'd load the one he just cleaned. He would take the dirty one, start cleaning it. I'd load that one up, the clean one, get it back on set. And we kept, cause they're, you know, they have to have 14 takes of everything. Right. You got to uh, make sure you get it just right. Yeah. So, uh, but we were able to rotate those guns in and Frank was able to keep them running through, I know seven or eight shots. And uh, to me, it's really impressive. Right. Um, and that's something you'll never know or never see. Um, the scene is cool cause you got so many guns going off such a tight space. Um, and, but to me, the trick was, was keeping that knock gun rolling. And, uh, and we had guns on two different ships. And so I was having to load guns on two different ships while Frank's cleaning the, the knock. And yeah, it was, it was a massive effort. <laughs> wow. So to kind of, I guess, bring it back to, you know, the folks listening, what kind of tips or, or resources would you point some aspiring craftsmen towards you know if they're interested in your work and the kind of things that you do uh, what can they learn or, or where would you point them to learn uh, learn more both just about the craft and uh, and we'll get into a little bit about you a little bit later um if if we're talking about knife making yeah knife uh, yeah then my first and foremost thing is to study um and online stuff is great but there's nothing better than having a book made of paper in front of you uh, where you can take notes. Uh, if you look at my books, I've got notes and margins. I've got measurements. Uh, you know, I, they're, they're going to be worthless when I'm done. Um, because <laughs> I've just dog-eared the pages and written in the margin. It's a mess. But that's what they're for. Uh, that's what they're for. And, and the second thing I would say is, is take a class. Um, or, or more than one. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'd been making knives for years and, and, and taught by one of the best in our, in our world. Um, you know, Frank, but I still learn something every time I'd go to an ABS, um, workshop, uh, like Dr. Badston or, or Castile or any of these guys, um, you know, I've been doing it for 20 years and I'm still going to classes and learning cool stuff, right. uh, stuff I, I didn't think of stuff that made my life easier. Um, so there's nothing better than hands-on with somebody that knows what they're doing and, and, and enjoys teaching. It needs to be somebody that enjoys teaching or it's, it's kind of useless. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, those two things study, um, learn from what other people have done and, and take a class. It's not cheap. Classes aren't cheap, but I promise you in the long run, it will be of great value. 
Yeah. And and it will be cheaper in the long run than floundering for for years, maybe. Yeah, um, I, I kind of think about a, a class as kind of an accelerator for a lot of this stuff is I, I can fumble around in my shop and kind of figure something out. Um, but the minute I, I go somewhere and I'm talking to somebody like you that knows so much more and, and you're, you can explain something and, and lay something out, it's just, it makes so much so clear so fast. Yeah, it, it is an accelerator. And, and on top of that, I would say, um, if you're going to take two classes or three classes, don't take them all from one instructor. Mm. Um, you know, find good instructors, Yeah, instructors that do what you want to do and, and instructors that come with, with, uh, you know, the right bona fides or, or the right recommendations, um, because everybody does something different. Um, you know, even, even Frank and I, um, you know, I learned from Frank, but he remarks often when we're at shows or we talk that that my knives don't look like his. Um, and he's he has said he's proud of that. He likes that. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I enjoy the Woodbury style. I still make those um, occasionally um, because I like it. And personally, I, I, I think it's, it's got a, a good great look. aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I I like it, um, but also like other stuff, and uh, I, I you know you need to stretch your wings a little bit and try something you haven't done before. I like that, and that's a that's a message that we hear echoed. I think with just about every artist that we've had on to talk about uh, about their work and and what they would say to to other and, and up and coming artists. I think that's important that we. We learn from, I, mean, I think it even extends into history, not to pontificate or anything here, but we it's important to learn from what has existed and what was, and then kind of go and, and do something with it. You know, kind of, I, I, I like that personally. I like, I like learning and studying and then, you know, seeing where I can take something. So I, I appreciate that, that mentality being shared. Yeah. And like you said, it's an accelerator. It really is. You'll be surprised what you learn. Mm-hmm. You'd be surprised what you didn't know you didn't know. Right. Yeah. Sometimes it's just like, oh, you know, this was sitting here this whole time and I didn't even, I didn't put these together. This might be something for a different time, but, um, you know, a there are quite a few classes in the Indiana, Kentucky, Ohio area. Um, but is there a, a website or a resource out there for classes in other parts of the country that I might not be aware of and other listeners might not be aware of? Or a place to, uh, to look for these happening, I guess. That's one of the big questions I get. And I'm able to point to people, point people to what's kind of local to us. Um, but if they're in the South or the West, I, I kind of struggle. That's something I'm always on the yeah. hunt for. Yeah, I, I'm i right there with you. Um, you know, obviously, we've got Canner's Cave. We've got mm -hmm. um, the Woodbury classes. Um, I do classes in my shop, and I'm sure other makers do, too. Um I, I'd say for knife work, look at the ABS, um, and because they have hammer ins and seminars all over the country. Mm. Um, yeah, I know they've got them in Alabama and Arkansas, um, Ohio certainly uh, at the Quad State um, hammer in up there, um, and I know they have them out west as well. So um, I'm a member of the ABS. Uh, I don't 
ever intend to test for journeyman or, or, or master. Um, you know, what they do is not what I do, um, right. but I, I do support them and I enjoy their work. Um, and they've got great classes and there's, there's benefits from being a member of that organization. Mm. Um, and I, I think some of the classes you still have to pay for, but I think it's cheaper if you're a member. I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, I think that'd be a great resource for knife makers. Awesome. Yeah. I'll be sure to point some more folks to that. I guess here, as we kind of wrap up too, where can people find uh, you and your work if, if they've never heard of you and, and want to check out more of your work and, and see it, you know, some of the high quality photos and things that you take, where can people find that? Um, the best place is probably Instagram. Um, I'm on Instagram at Alvinshines underscore knives. Um, and on Facebook, it's Alvinshine custom knives i believe is what it is okay cool. i try to i try to keep those two pages up to date um and uh that's that's the most current stuff i don't have a website instagram and facebook have done really well for me yeah um, that's great and uh i can't complain so yeah both of those places probably fantastic I'll, I'll link those in the show notes too for the folks listening so they can check those out okay yeah, and find you. you there um, this is usually generally where I kind of wrap things up, Steve. I don't know if there's anything that we glossed over that you want to talk about. I mean, this is kind of, uh, I'll pass the mic back to you here. If there's anything else you'd like to talk about or promote or anything. Not really. Uh, I feel like I've rattled on enough. Um, <laughs> you did great. Don't you did a really great job. Um, the, this last picture I just did, um, in Hawaii, Chief of War, um, with Jason Momoa, um, that is going to be, of course, I don't know how the editing mm -hmm. and, and, and all that's going to, I, I, I can't sit here and tell you it's going to be a great show. Right. Right. Because I don't, I don't know. Um, but what I can tell you is what I saw has the potential to be a great show. It's uh, 18th century Hawaii, a lot of flintlocks. Um, it, uh, it's a pretty gory thing, I think. Uh, it's not going to be for the meek, um, but it's, it's, it's views and vistas we've never seen. Wow. It's flintlocks on the big island of Hawaii. Um, it's, uh, it's a great story. Um, it's, a, it's a history that we've never heard of. Uh, at least I hadn't. Um, and... Yeah, I feel I felt bad for not having known this history um, when I started researching this this story because um, it's fascinating. It's yeah. uh, you know the Flintlocks were introduced to the Hawaiian Islands um, and uh, changed the course of of history. Um, Man, and uh, so the views are fantastic. The photography looks great. A um, lot of lot of Flintlock gunfire um, and. Uh, it should be pretty cool. Should be pretty cool. All 
I'll have links to just about everything that Steve has mentioned here, as much as I can, at least in the show notes that go with this episode should be in the description for the podcast, the YouTube video, and it will be at the dedicated blog post for this episode at I love muzzleloading.com slash podcast for you to check out regardless of when in time you are listening to this. I want to make sure that we have those links in there so you can check this out. Um, again, check out Steve on Instagram and on Facebook, as well as the ABS. We'll have links to that so you can find out some of these classes and you can check out some of the other work that might be being done in your area so you can get out there and get hands on. Along with that, in case you're new to the program or I love muzzleloading.com here, I do my best to share as many events and classes that pertain to the topics that we're discussing here uh, on the blog. So you can check those out. You can search for the events or any of the education opportunities there at I love muzzleloading.com. If you enjoyed this conversation with Steve and you enjoyed his mentality and, and hearing about his work, I really encourage you to check out the November, December, 2022 issue of Muzzle loader magazine my buddy eric ewing did an entire artisan feature on steve and his work eric really goes into the artist side of steve's work and some of the stories and influences that are there combined with some wonderful photography by rick lambert this is not an ad i know muzzleloader magazine sponsors the program i just want to give this shout out here if you're interested in steve's work there is this great article out there by Eric Ewing for you to check out. It's going to give you even more of an insight into Steve and his work and, and the kind of great guy that he is. That's all I have for you this week. We have quite a few other great episodes, I think, here in the queue for you to check out as we head into 2023 here. Um, really appreciate Steve and, and really appreciate all the guests that we had in 2022. I really think you're going to enjoy the episodes we have coming up here in 2023. If you're listening to this when it comes out in kind of late January 2023 here, and you're interested in catching up and chatting with me at a show or, or, or an event, I'll be at the Connor Long Rifle Show in Noblesville, Indiana. I think it's February 18th and 19th. And then in March, I will be at the Kalamazoo Living History Show uh, set up and, and talking with muzzleloading enthusiasts there. So if you see me at either of those events, please pull me aside and, and talk to me a little bit about muzzleloading. It's one of the main reasons I go to these events now. I enjoy catching up with friends and, and shopping you know, for my own personal collection, but it is always nice to catch up with you and, and hear about the projects that you have going on with your own muzzleloading gear. As always, you can check out more information at ilovemuzzleloading.com. I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time.